1: we go, episode 319 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Friday, May 20th, 2022, and I have to tell you something. I may need your help. (laughs) I may need your assistance. I may need you to, how can I put this, uh, engage in battle with me. Uh, Some ultra-sensitive, ultra-triggered Indianapolis Colts fans got mad at me on Thursday. Uh, <laughs> this is pretty funny. I quote tweeted a video of our commander starting quarterback, last season's Colts starting quarterback, Carson Wentz on the Colin Calvert podcast, giving a great response to having been called a mistake by Colts owner and CEO Jim Irsay. I said in the tweet accurately, quote, Carson Wentz has done nothing but take the high road Despite Jim Ursay having said some very negative, if not nasty, things. And quote, there is nothing inaccurate about what I tweeted, but boy, you should <laughs> you should see how angry and bothered some of these Colts fans got. I mean, first of all, how all of these Colts fans saw what I tweeted, I do not know. Because like of the people who follow me on Twitter are Commanders fans. And me saying 90% may be a low estimate, but somehow a bunch of Colts fans became aware of what I tweeted and they felt compelled to respond. Like, think about that. How many of you, as Commanders fans, would go out of your way to tweet something to the host of a Colts podcast in Indianapolis? I mean, I just got such a kick out of this. Twitter is something else. I felt like saying to these Colts fans, gee, if what I wrote is so wrong, which it wasn't, by the way, why are you so bothered by it? But yeah, uh, it may go down at any moment. Uh, Myself versus the entire city of Indianapolis. So if you don't mind, uh, maybe you could help a brother out. Uh, No wonder Elon Musk now may not be buying Twitter. But hello and welcome to a Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, the only Washington, D.C. sports podcast or show that is with you every weekday with each episode out by the 5 a.m. hour and many times out much earlier than that. And make no mistake, this is a Washington, D.C. sports podcast, not an Indianapolis sports podcast. Uh, Next segment, I will discuss, despite what the wonderful and warm people of India may think, what Carson Wentz said on the Colin Cowherd podcast. But more prominently, what Carson Wentz keeps doing Regarding his exit from the Colts, taking the high road and taking the blame, you know, for a guy with a not so great reputation as a teammate and a leader, all Wentz has done since being traded to the commanders when asked about his exit from the Colts and when asked about what Jim Ursay has said is act like a good teammate and leader. Actions speak louder than words, of course, okay? And maybe we'll look back upon these words months from now and say they meant nothing. But for now, the words of Carson Wentz continue to be impressive. And encouraging. This has been a big week on the Al Galdi Podcast. I on Wednesday show, episode three hundred and seventeen, had former Redskins general manager, Scott McLuhan, on the pod. Uh, what Scott said about the Commanders 2022 draft has gotten a good bit of attention. Scott likes a lot of what the Commanders did. I would highly encourage you to check out what Scott had to say if you haven't yet done that. I on this installment of the podcast have another special guest for you, Pro Football Focus Salary Cap analyst. Brad Spielberger. Uh, Brad is outstanding at talking about the NFL salary cap and about NFL contracts, and so who better than Brad to have on this podcast to address whether the commanders should be doing more in free agency this offseason. I talked about that at length on Thursday's show, episode 318, but I'm going to talk about a lot more than just that with Brad. Uh, Brad has come out with his 2022 cap health rankings. Spoiler alert, the commanders are in the top five in the NFL. Brad will explain. Uh, Brad also will discuss what a potential Terry McLaurin contract extension is. This offseason would have to look like. And we'll talk about the exploding receiver market in the NFL this offseason. Brad will give us his take on Carson Wentz, including whether the Commanders should have restructured Wentz's contract. Uh, Brad will explain why the Commanders trade with the New Orleans Saints to move down five spots in the first round of the 2022 NFL draft was a slam dunk for the Commanders. Yeah, Brad loved that trade. You're gonna like a lot of what you hear from Brad Spielberger. I promise you that he's a good guy. And a really smart guy. And then, I late in the show will talk Orioles, whose six-game losing streak is over. Uh, a nine-six walk-off win over the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Thursday afternoon. Monster game for Anthony Santander, who hit a walk-off three-run homer. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com email from dave in Elkton, maryland on carson wentz and the commanders writes dave i love your show keep it up i am 55 years old and have been a washington fan since i was a child and still regularly attend the games i am not upset about the wentz gamble the investment is not huge and the long-term exposure is low low risk versus high reward potential is very good. I still like Taylor Heineke, but my prediction, although I hope Wentz kills it, is that Wentz will falter in some manner and Sam Howell will emerge as a great quarterback. I see Howell as another mid to late round unexpected starter, like Kirk Cousins, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, etc., as for Carson Wentz, it occurs to me that he needs to have a solid protection up front to flourish. And Indy has been bad at that for as long as I can remember. Andrew Luck got killed and retired early. I see real reason for optimism. I think that the commanders have plenty of talent if they pull it together, which is a coaching thing. They may surprise everyone this year. For me, I just want them to be legitimately competitive with games that actually matter in December. There is far too much attention being paid to what the owner is doing or not doing, but I remind people the team was declining under Jack Ken Cook at the end. I doubt that Dan Snyder is going anywhere, and I am guessing the congressional attention, which is idiotic, will dissipate if slash when the house flips. So I am optimistic, and for a long time, that hasn't been true. As for the name change, I am ambivalent. If they don't suck, everyone will be fine with the name. If they continue to get beat and badly, everyone will hate the name, just like everything else. Here's to let's not gonna be suck (laughs) this year. H-T-T-C. Thank you for the email, Dave. And thank you for referencing one of the greatest lines in Washington, D.C. sports history. What Alex Ovechkin said... At 2017 Capitals training camp to launch what ended up being the Caps 2017-2018 Stanley Cup championship season. We're not going to be suck this year. Yes, there it is right there. What became the mantra for that season, we not going to be suck this year. Uh, Dave's point about the offensive line is a good one and a key one. I've talked about this. I'll reiterate the point right now. Carson Wentz with the Commanders is poised to have much better pass protection than the pass protection that he had with the Colts. Sorry, Indianapolis. Uh, Washington's offensive line in the 2021 regular season blew away the Colts offensive line. In terms of pass blocking, Washington for the 2021 regular season for pro football focus had the number six offensive line in the NFL in terms of pass blocking efficiency. The Colts for the 2021 regular season had the number 30 offensive line in the NFL in terms of pass blocking efficiency. Washington for the 2021 regular season was number nine in the NFL in ESPN's team pass block win rate. The Colts were 20th. Uh, As far as Dave's point about the Redskins declining in the latter years of Jack Kent Cook's ownership of the team, yeah, uh, that is 100% true. Too often, the decline of the franchise is noted as starting when Dan Snyder bought the team. Not true. Uh, Dan has made things worse, okay? That is true. But Dan bought the Redskins in May 1999. The Skins from 1993 through 1998 didn't make the playoffs at all. The decline of the franchise started with the 1993 season, which not so coincidentally was the first season after Joe Gibbs' first retirement, and not so coincidentally was the first season off the start of Modern Free Agency in the 1993 offseason. Uh, I spent a good bit of time on Mondays and Tuesdays shows, episodes 315 and 316 Talking Capitals, uh, and what now for the Caps off them losing in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for a fourth consecutive year? Uh, Peter Hassett, co-founder of the Great Caps blog, Russian Machine Never Breaks, joined me on Tuesday's show, episode 316. He was excellent, uh, and I've gotten some good emails regarding the Caps. Email from Rich. I grew up reading about the Caps in the Washington Post. Before Media General Cable came to Fairfax County, we only had the major networks and channels 520 and 26. My parents were not hockey fans, and all of my exposure to the Caps was either the Post, brief highlights from Glenn Brenner, or a lucky chance viewing if a game came on channel 20. I don't pretend to be a big fan. I do claim that I am a longtime casual observer. I remember long bouts of futility with Rod Langway, and Kevin Hatcher. There was always a quick end to the season and disappointment. In the 90s, the Caps made a run with Adam Oates and the gang. They got closer and failed. The general feeling in town was the Caps were chokers. Then Alex Ovechkin came to town, and suddenly anything was possible, yet things were still very much the same. We lost in the playoffs. We blew leads. Frustration, Choking. The cup win was exciting. The feeling was that the Caps had finally broken through to the next level. But was this really a threshold event, or rather, could it be the outlier? Are we now back to lost leads in the playoffs, early exits, and disappointment? Are the Capitals still chokers, with one great exception? What say you? Keep up the good work. Uh, thank you, Rich. So, the whole concept of the Caps being chokers is so interesting to me. Like, Logically, what happened with a Caps team in the 1980s or 1990s should have zero bearing on what happens with a Caps team now. And yet, the Caps, throughout their history of making the Stanley Cup playoffs, have lost in first and second rounds of Stanley Cup playoffs and have blown two-game series leads. You have heard me bring up the incredible fact that 29 of the Caps, 32 all-time appearances in the Stanley Cup playoffs have ended in a first or second round. Well, how about this? The Caps have lost 11 playoff series in which the team held a two-game lead. 11. That is a mind-blowing number. Uh, Five of these instances have come during the Alex Ovechkin era. The most recent instance was in 2019 the Caps in the first round of the 2019 Stanley Cup playoffs lost to the Carolina Hurricanes. The Caps in that series were up 2-0. So when it comes to the Caps being disappointing in the Stanley Cup playoffs, I believe several things to be true. Winning in the Stanley Cup playoffs is hard and can be random because the nature of hockey as a sport is that it can be random, given that you're at the mercy of, you know, a rubber puck on ice. But what's also true is that the Caps have dealt with an inordinate amount of postseason fails and postseason chokes. And there never has been a clear reason as to why. Like, it doesn't make sense that the postseason fails and postseason chokes have happened as often as they have. But those things have happened, and quite a bit. Uh, Email from Donna Sandin on the Caps. Writes, Donna, I listened to your comments on the Caps. You always give them good coverage. My son gives me the link. My main point, you should have mentioned more prominently the fact that the Caps went to the Stanley Cup final in 1998. It was a very fluky season. We kept winning somehow. Then they were swept by Detroit. My son and I were at that game, but we made it that far. Regarding the current season, I was very relieved that we were not swept by Florida given how poorly we played toward the end of the regular season. And I'm glad that the elimination game was in our own barn with a sympathetic fan base. My husband bought tickets for the first cap season in 1974, and he attended every game with a friend, always had hopes For better performances. I went sometimes when we could get a sitter. Then we went overseas, but on return, we didn't miss a game. 1983 to 1995 at Capital Center. 40-mile trip, only a minimal post-game program with Ron Weber. Not much television coverage. Not sure when home team sports kicked in. We went to the fan dinners and took a fan trip to Montreal and Quebec City when the Nordiques were still playing. My husband passed away in 1995 at the age of 70. At my advanced age, over 80, I moved to a retirement community in Winchester, Virginia. Not feasible to attend many games now, but I just had to express my opinion as a longtime fan. Donna, I appreciate your email so much. I thank you for your email so much. Yes, the Caps did make it to the Stanley Cup Final in 1998. I remember that well. Uh, The three times that the Caps have advanced past the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. 1990, when the Caps got swept by the Boston Bruins in the Eastern Conference Final. 1998, when the Caps got swept by the Detroit Red Wings in the Stanley Cup Final. And 2018, when, oh yeah, the Caps beat their former general manager, the architect of the Rock the Red era, George McPhee, and his Vegas Golden Knights in the Stanley Cup Final. But how about that? An email from 80-something-year-old Donna from a retirement community in Winchester, Virginia, talking caps. I love it. The range of people who listen to this podcast never ceases to amaze me. Well, speaking of a range of people, no matter how old you are, no matter what your situation in life is, if you're looking to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you got to get with Kellen Hunt. Visit closeitwithkel.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You know, the competition for homes in the D.C. area right now is extreme, high demand coupled with low inventory. You know how that goes. And so homes in the D.C. area are going under contract quickly after those homes are listed. And when I say the D.C. area, I mean in a variety of places in the D.C. area. Uh, Kensington, Maryland, Delray in Alexandria, Virginia, American University Park, in Washington DC, the real estate market throughout this area is hot. How do you make sure that you get the home that you want and deserve? What's the right strategy? This is where Kellen Hunt comes in. Kellen Hunt has a mastery of the Washington DC area real estate market, but you know, he's not just some know-it-all. He is here for you. He is here to listen to you, to hear what you want, and then determine the best way of going about getting it. If you're wanting to buy a home in the D.C. area, you need a smart realtor to ensure that your offer is the offer that wins. Put Kellen Hunt to work for you. His website says it all, closeitwithkel.com. Kellen Hunt is a closer, and Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you the buyer get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Goldie sent you. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book an introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel. Visit CloseItWithKel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent ya. All right, before we get to our special guest, Pro Football Focus salary cap analyst Brad Spielberger talking commanders, uh, I want to talk about our commander's new starting quarterback, our commander's new QB1 Carson Wentz. Uh, So as we have discussed quite a bit, one of the undeniable aspects of the Indianapolis Colts trading Wentz to the commanders in March, just one year after trading for Wentz in a trade with the Philadelphia Eagles, is that the Colts trading of Wentz was owner driven, that the Colts trading of Wentz was driven by their owner and CEO Jim Irsay. Uh, Now, this doesn't mean that the red flags with Carson Wentz aren't legitimate. This doesn't mean that Carson Wentz has been perfect and that the only reason that he is no longer on the Colts is that Jim Irsay is, you know, a big meaty pants. Okay. But the trade was fueled by the desires of Jim Irsay. I was told this explicitly on this podcast by Colts insider Mike Chappell of Fox 59 CBS4 Sports in Indianapolis on episode 277 of the podcast. And every indication from Urse has been that he wanted nothing to do with Wentz as a Colts quarterback moving forward, especially off what happened in week 18 of last season. The Colts inexplicably losing at the Jacksonville Jaguars 26-11, costing the Colts a playoff spot. Ursay on March 29th at the NFL's annual league meeting in Palm Beach, Florida, sounded off on Carson Wentz, said the following about why the Colts traded Wentz, quote, I think the worst thing you can do is have a mistake and try to keep living with it going forward. It's just for us, it was just it was something that we had to move away from as a franchise. It was very obvious End quote. Uh, Also from Jim Irsay on March 29th was him going off about how Carson Wentz was to blame for that season-ending loss at Jacksonville. Quote, no disrespect to Jacksonville, but I mean, they're the worst team in the league. You play well and hard for the first quarter or so, and they're looking to go to their locker room and clean it out. I've never seen anything like that in my life. You say, my God, there's something wrong here. It needs to be corrected. End quote. So Jim Irsay has had some harsh things to say about Carson Wentz. Now, these things may be true. These things may be valid, but these things certainly have been harsh. I mean, Ursay on March 29th flat out called Wentz a mistake, okay? Called the dude a mistake. Uh, well, Carson Wentz was on an episode of the Colin Cowherd podcast that came out on Wednesday. Wentz got asked about being called a mistake by Irsay, Here was that exchange between Coward and Wentz.
2: I've said that I've defended you a lot in the air where I'm like, I don't know, big, strong athletic. I like him. But, you know, like when Jim Ursay says, hey, we made a mistake, I'm like, ow, ow, that's kind of like that. That hurts a little, right?
3: (laughs) I mean, it is what it is. You know, everyone's entitled their own opinion. Um, You know, I I thought. Last year was a was a really fun year. Um, you know, I thought we, we did some incredible things. Uh came up short at the end. Obviously I struggled down down the stretch there and timing was, was poor. Um, but yeah, that I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that things to unfold the way they did. And, you know, I thought things were, were in a pretty good place there. I had awesome relationships with, with every single person in that building. Can't say enough good things about um the people over there and um yeah, kinda came out of left field, you know. He's he's entitled to his own opinion and you know. He's entitled to do what he wants with his football team.
1: So how about that from Carson Wentz on having been called a mistake by Jim Irsay? Quote, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I thought last year it was a really fun year. I thought we did some incredible things, came up short at the end. Obviously, I struggled down the stretch there, and timing was poor. But yeah, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect things to unfold the way they did, and I thought things were in a pretty good place there. I had awesome relationships with every single person in that building. Can't say enough good things about the people over there. Yeah, kind of came out of left field, you know. He's entitled to his own opinion, and he's entitled to do what he wants with his football team, end quote. That, my friends, is what we call taking the high road. That is what we call a mature and classy response. Uh, I was impressed with that answer from Wentz. He could have sounded off on Jim Irsay. Wentz at least could have taken a subtle shot at Ursay. Wentz didn't do any of those things. Uh, That was a total high road, all class answer. Now, Colin Cowherd then followed up by trying to again, shall we say, bait Wentz to a degree, Uh, bringing up how the loss at Jacksonville wasn't unique to Wentz in terms of being a member of the Colts. Listen to this exchange, especially Wentz's answer.
2: You know the nfl's tough as you know you played for a dominant college program and in college you line up a lot of times if you're in a top program and you know on saturday like you'd have to really screw up in the nfl the jet the jets beat the colts or the excuse me the jets beat the titans who are the number one seed in the afc like people don't want to talk about that but they want to talk about the jags beating the colts but the jets for and if you watch that game you're like what what is going on here so did you think at one point i mean, it's by the way the colts have struggled with the jags in jacksonville for the last half decade when people freaked out carson was there part of you thinking hey time out you can google you can google how we've done down here like i'm not the only guy that's struggling right
3: <laughs> um yeah i mean honestly it was just a, a real tough ending you know I, honestly and then once rumors and reports are going around i'm like you know, talking to my agent, are these things real? What's going on? Like honestly, it was uh kind of came out of left field. Um, and you know, you kinda of just try not to think too much of it. You know, rumors and reports are a big part of this business we're in. So you never know what's true and what's not. So try to not stress about it too much. But yeah, it was a it was a very unfortunate ending to the season. Um, you know, not a good time to um to play poorly, uh, the way the way I did and as a team we struggled, but um, yeah, that's what's crazy about the league is, as you just said, anybody can beat anybody anytime you step on that field. And I mean, we had our, our work cut out for us the first time we played the Jags at home. You know, we, we you know, squeaked it out in the end and uh, it's always a good team. That was a good defense last year and they made our lives tough
1: and uh, they got us on that day. So again, a mature and classy answer from Carson Wentz. Colin Calvert essentially asking Wentz, hey, part of you had to be thinking that you were taking way too much heat for the loss at Jacksonville. And Wentz did not take the bait from Cowherd. Quote, yeah, I mean, honestly, it was just a real tough ending. It kind of came out of left field. You kind of just try not to think too much of it. Rumors and reports are a big part of this business, so you never know what's true and what's not. You try to not stress about it too much. But yeah, it was a very unfortunate ending to the season. Not a good time to play poorly the way I did. and as a team we struggled. End quote." So Carson Wentz once again said that he struggled, admitted that he struggled, didn't deflect, didn't get sensitive, didn't get angry, he pointed the finger of blame at himself. In that first cut that I played for you, Wen said, quote, obviously, I struggled down the stretch there and timing was poor, end quote. In the second cut that I played for you, Wen said, quote, not a good time to play poorly the way I did. And as a team, we struggled, end quote. It's time to make something clear. And I tweeted this on Thursday. Carson Wentz has done nothing but take the high road despite Jim Irsay having said some very negative, if not nasty things about Wentz. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, uh, what else is Wentz going to do? And to that, I would say, well, uh, look at how often people in sports take shots at other people in sports or make cryptic comments about other people in sports or make passive aggressive comments about other people in sports. Happens all of the time. So that's what else that Wentz might have done. But he hasn't done any of those things. And more globally, Carson Wentz has taken ownership of having played poorly down the stretch of last season. Go back to his introductory press conference for the Commanders on March 17th. Wentz referred to having played bad in each of the Colts' final two games in the 2021 regular season by saying, quote, the way we finished, the way I finished, was poor, was poor. End quote. He essentially corrected himself there. He initially used the pronoun we he then quickly changed to the pronoun I because that's what you do when you're a quarterback and you're talking about poor performance. It's I played poorly, not we played poorly. You shoulder the load of blame. And look, there's no doubt that Carson Wentz ended his 2021 season poorly. Wentz choked. Okay, let's just say it. Wentz choked over the Colts' final two games in the 2021 regular season. The Colts cost themselves a playoff spot by losing at home to the Las Vegas Raiders, 23-20 in week 17, and then losing at the Jacksonville Jaguars, 26-11 in week 18. And that week 18 loss was atrocious. The Jags came into the game just 2-14, and 14, came into the game as 15-point underdogs, and yet the Colts ended up losing the game by 15 points. Wentz, over these two games, had a combined total QBR per ESPN of just 13. His total QBR for the loss at the Jags was a mere 4.3. Total QBR is on a scale of 0 to 100. So Wentz's combined total QBR over the Colts final two games of the 2021 regular season, a mere 13. And Wentz's total QBR for that loss at Jacksonville in week 18, a mere 4.3. But what's also true is that those two losses weren't all on Carson Wentz. And what's also true is that Carson Wentz in the 2021 regular season Did plenty of good things for the Colts. Wentz for the 2021 regular season, it was number nine among qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in total QBR at 54.7. Wentz for the 2021 regular season, it was number one among qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in football outsiders' DVOA metric on pass attempts of at least 20 air yards. Uh, Wentz in the 2021 regular season was quite good in four big road wins for the Colts. Wins at the Miami Dolphins, San Francisco 49ers, Buffalo Bills, and Arizona Cardinals had a total QBR of at least 71.9 in each of those games. So yeah, Carson Wentz ended his 2021 season in a terrible way, but there was more to his 2021 season than just the ending. And here's the most significant point. When it comes to Carson Wentz, the guy, Carson Wentz, the leader, Carson Wentz, the teammate, him continually taking the high road regarding him being traded by the Colts and him continually pointing the finger of blame at himself regarding the Colts' also so bad ending to the 2021 regular season are very encouraging signs. And look, I get it. Him taking the high road him pointing the finger of blame at himself, those things are just talk, right? Those things are just words. Actions matter much more than words. But right now, talk is all that we have to go by. Words are all that we have to go by. And for all of the talk of Carson Wentz having not always been a great teammate and having lacked in leadership and having not always been coachable, him continually taking the high road, him continually pointing the finger of blame at himself, him continually not getting defensive and admitting that he played poorly late last season, uh, those things are all very good signs for us as fans of the commanders. Carson Wentz in doing these things is, wait for it, taking command (laughs) of his late season struggles with the Colts. And you know what? Maybe all of this is an act, okay? Maybe all of this is just Carson Wentz putting on a show, okay? Putting on a front. Maybe the reality is that Carson Wentz is just a big phony, all right? But you know what's also possible? You know what also might be true? That Carson Wentz has learned some lessons and has matured and realizes that his chance with the commanders is probably his last chance to go into an NFL team season as the intended starting quarterback. You know, there may well be tremendous irony here because for all of the talk of the Colts having traded Carson Wentz because of his character, it is Wentz, not the Colts owner, Jim Irsay, who has demonstrated admirable character since the trade went down. Ursay, in a lot of ways has taken the low road You know, he has said some nice things about Wentz, but like I said, Ursay also has said some very negative, if not nasty, things about Wentz. Wentz has consistently taken the high road. And yet Wentz supposedly was the guy with the bad character, and so he had to be traded. Look, I'm not naive to the red flags with Carson Wentz. I've talked about them a lot. I, as a Commanders fan, am going into the Carson Wentz experience with eyes wide open. Trust me on that. But I'm also going into the Carson Wentz experience with an open mind. And the truth is that he has handled the way that he's been talked about by Jim Ursay and has handled the overall departure from the Colts in a very impressive way. And that could be, could be indicative of some very good things. Up next, I welcome on our special guest, Pro Football Focus Salary Cap Analyst Brad Spielberger. Uh, Brad's 2022 cap health rankings are out. You're going to like where the commanders are ranked, especially a certain aspect of their ranking. I'll also talk with Brad about a potential Terry McLaurin contract extension this offseason, whether the commanders should be doing more in free agency this offseason, whether the commanders should have restructured Carson Wentz's contract this offseason, where NFL teams should spend the bulk of their money and much more. Brad Spielberger is really good at talking about the NFL from a salary cap perspective, and Brad is up next. Do not forget to give the Al Galdi podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Do not forget to write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts saying how much that you like the podcast, and thank you very much for doing those things. So the state of the commanders when it comes to their salary cap has come up quite a bit this week off them not signing corner James Bradbury, who ended up agreeing on a one-year contract with the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, there are many potential reasons for why the Commanders didn't sign Bradbury, but the Commanders not signing Bradbury has led to the more general questions of, well, why haven't the Commanders signed more external free agents this offseason, and should the Commanders be doing more in free agency? This offseason. So, what is the truth about the commander salary cap situation? To discuss that and a lot more about the commanders, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast Pro Football Focus salary cap analyst Brad Spielberger. Uh, you can follow Brad on Twitter at PFF underscore Brad. Brad also is a contributor to the terrific website overthecap.com. Uh, he's also a lawyer. Uh, hey, Brad, great to talk to you, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. How about yourself? Doing well. I appreciate you coming on. So you on Tuesday came out with your first edition of your 2022 cap health rankings and the commanders ranked number five in the NFL in your 2022 cap health rankings. Uh, that's obviously a very good ranking. Uh, I know that your cap health rankings are comprised of of five things. Active draft capital, effective cap space for the next three seasons, total prorated money, top 51 roster valuation, and evaluation of the team's unrestricted free agents for next offseason. Could you just expound on what the cap health rankings are about and what it means for the commanders to be number five in those rankings?
5: yeah for sure so it it tries to take a series of components and in roster construction and boil everything down to just kind of one metric that realistically just says you know where are you in a financial situation could you be aggressive and spend a lot if you wanted to obviously the teams at the bottom of the list like the saints and the eagles they're still spending plenty as well so it's not necessarily saying that you can't spend if you're not ranking well but it really just shows you know do you have good young players Have you signed a lot of your players or do you have pending free agents that are owed a lot of money? Obviously, the commanders have a couple of those, but and it kind of boils all that down into one metric. And and, and they were pretty solid across the board and ended up fifth overall.
1: So the five criteria for your cap health rankings, like I said, are active draft capital, effective cap space for the next three seasons, total prorated money, top 51 roster valuation and evaluation of the team's unrestricted free agents. For next offseason, which of those five criteria is the most important in your opinion?
5: I would say, you know, really just your roster valuation. I think a lot of times we get tied up in myself included. You know, I'll talk about cap space or cap health and fans of good teams will say, why should I care about the salary cap if we're winning football games? And so I tried to emphasize more the value of the roster. And I'll say this might surprise some folks, but the Commanders did very well in this category as well. And I think part of that has to do with they always want to address the premium positions, right? So when you're drafting offensive linemen and defensive linemen, when you're spending, you know, wide receiver, when you have good players at the positions that cost a lot of money, you're going to have a strong roster valuation. So they actually came in fifth, which I'll say surprised me even when I did it. But when you go down the roster and look at all the defensive line talent, Terry McLaurin is, you know, 20 million plus per year player per our numbers. It, it's, it makes sense when you look at it, when you break it down.
1: Wow. So the Commanders came in fifth in the NFL in your top 51 roster valuations.
5: I know. I know it sounds surprising. <laughs> yeah, I know. And maybe it's, you know, maybe I need to tweak it, but it, it really does come back to, they may be deficient in certain areas. They probably could add a little more in the secondary. Maybe they could add an off-ball linebacker. Maybe they could add, you know, interior offensive line to replace some guys. But at the tackle spots, they're they're healthy. The entire defensive line, they're obviously looking very good. Some good young corners. I mentioned Terry McLaurin, and yeah, obviously quarterback, you know, is not great, but it's it has been an improvement over the last couple of years for them.
1: So you mentioned Terry McLaurin being a twenty-plus million dollar per year player. That's obviously not literally true. Not yet. Uh, he makes a lot less than that, but. Uh, The idea with McLaurin being a 20 plus million dollar per year player, obviously, is that that is what he is worth, given his production and position. I love this. Putting dollar figures on player values. What's your methodology for that?
5: Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's an unadjusted way I do it with just a simple model, which just takes our wins above replacement metric and then adjusts for a guy's age, his draft status, which probably would actually work against Terry a little bit um, and, and a bunch of other components. And it kind of spits out and it, Then it judges versus the market. Right. So if it said, hey, Terry McLaurin is the 15th best wide receiver in the NFL. It would go look at historical, you know, market trends at the wide receiver position. Where is he likely to get paid? And of course, you know, benefits him that this recent market explosion uh, does does nothing but benefit Terry McLaurin.
1: While we're talking Terry McLaurin, a major item for the Commanders this offseason is a potential Terry McLaurin contract extension. He's entering the final season of his four-year rookie contract. We this offseason, of course, have been seeing receivers get paid like never before. What do you think that a contract extension for McLaurin this offseason would have to be in order to get him to sign an extension this offseason?
5: Yeah, you know, I do think at this point, twenty million per year is probably the floor. Um, you know, I would say maybe if they come to him with, let's say, five years, one hundred and ten million, so twenty ten million per, twenty two million dollars per year. And I know these numbers sound crazy, but that is where the position market has grown. AJ Brown gets twenty five million per year. I think we're going to see DK Metcalf, Debo Samuel get some strong contracts in the near future as well. I mean, that is the caliber of player he is on the field. And I think it also, you know, everything he does and tangibles and everything off the field as well, that does get baked into contracts a little bit.
1: The commanders this offseason have not done much in free agency. Now, personally, I'm not necessarily bothered by that. So many big money free agent signings do not work out. But the team last season wasn't great. Ron Rivera has said multiple times that the team this coming season needs to have a step forward season. And the team, even off having traded for Carson Wentz, does have enough salary cap space to seemingly be doing more in free agency. Are you at all surprised that the commanders haven't been more active in free agency?
5: That's a good question. I think they're thinking, and not to put everything on him, but I really think they're thinking is going from Taylor Heineke to a guy in Carson Wentz, who, yes, is coming off. Honestly, he wasn't terrible last year. He was, you know, average or below average. Uh, I think that's still a pretty significant improvement at the most important position in all of sports. And so... I think their philosophy is probably another year of this system, a lot more of their own draft picks now, you know, playing important roles and contributing at a higher level and just trusting that the quarterback improvement will make a significant impact. And the last piece, getting Chase Young back, getting this defense back to how they were playing in 2020, I think it's more just trusting the growth of their own guys, which I think it's hard to you know hold that against them.
1: Where are you with Carson Wentz as a Commanders quarterback? What do you think that an appropriate outlook is for what Wentz can be for the Commanders?
5: Um, I don't think he's going to be a game record at any point going forward in his career, but I like the offensive line in Washington. There's not only good players in the starters, but there's good depth there now as well. Um, and, and then you look at adding Jahan Dotson, who I know some folks thought maybe was a bit of a reach, but I love trading down first. I think you can kind of get away with a reach, so to speak, if you first acquire some extra draft capital like they did from the New Orleans Saints. And I'm a huge fan of Jahan Dotson, the player. So I do. I think there is a, everything around him. I think Ron Rivera is a good offensive coach. Um, Scott Turner, I think, has been kind of underrated the last couple of years in his scheme. Um, and I do. I think, look, again, like just like with Indianapolis, He maybe is not going to carry you to victories or put you on his back, which, you know, you probably want or or need at certain times. But he's not going to throw away too many games for you.
1: We're talking commanders with Pro Football Focus salary cap analyst Brad Spielberger. With Carson Wentz, he has a cap hit for the 2022 season of $28.3 million. Three years left on his contract, but the guaranteed money is done with after this coming season. Should the commanders have renegotiated Wentz's contract to give themselves more cap room? This offseason, or do you think that maintaining that ability to get out of the Wentz contract after this season with no dead money is worth the price of less cap room this offseason?
5: So, the latter, and that actually plays back into the rankings as well, is that they have the third lowest amount of prorated money. And so, what prorated money is, is just signing bonus or restructures, like you mentioned. And the reason why you don't want to have it is because it's sunk money. You cannot manipulate it and move it around. I know, you know folks say the cap is fake and all that stuff. And yes, you can you can push money down the line you can't alter or change prorated money so i i agree with what washington did yes 28 million is a big chunk of your salary cap but you look at the indianapolis colts they also made the decision to not restructure his deal to kind of keep it how it was and it made moving him easier unlike the lions who prorated some of jared goff's money and maybe that's why you know he's still the guy there in detroit
1: When it comes to the positions at which NFL teams should spend their most money, are you a big believer in an NFL team allocating the bulk of its salary cap space to certain positions, or is roster construction not as simple as that?
5: I would say ideally you do want to spend at certain spots. I mean, edge rusher, tackle, and wide receiver I think are, are in the next tier, kind of in a class of their own. And then, you know, interior defensive linemen, Particularly guys that can rush the passer, so not necessarily nose tackles and run stuffers, but you know guys that can actually generate pressure on the quarterback from the interior, especially nowadays more and more. But yeah, at the end of the day, I think that's kind of an idealistic view. If you have a very good player, regardless of where he plays, maybe not running back or some of the really fringe positions now, but you probably should pay that guy, keep him around. Um, but yeah, context is everything.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. With the explosion in money at receiver, is this a bubble that's going to burst, or is this the new normal, given that the NFL has become so pass-happy, and we for years now have seen quarterbacks make a ton of money, and so it stands to reason that receivers eventually end up making a ton of money?
5: You know, I actually could see it being something of a bubble. Uh, I do think it's a super important position. The guys deserve the money. I'm not saying they shouldn't be getting it, but... You know, I kind of grew up, and, and yes, they had Randy Moss for a stretch, but the New England Patriots, I think folks forget. I mean, never really had a true number one wide receiver for the longest time. I mean, they did have, you know, Robert Gronkowski, and I think they kind of sneakily spent a tight end instead. But I, I kind of do see it as a bit of a bubble to where if you can get a couple really good receivers as opposed to one great one, um, and you save some money there, I, I think that's an edge that some team, as everyone's zigging, I think some smart teams may now zag.
1: Zigging while zagging is usually a good thing. I love that. Uh, A positional value issue that has come up for the Commanders is paying defensive linemen. The team spent a first-round pick on a defensive lineman in each of four consecutive NFL drafts, 2017 through 2020. Now, this offseason, the Commanders have released a non-first-round defensive lineman and Matt Ioannidis, and have allowed another non-first-round defensive lineman, Tim Settle, to leave via free agency. And it's looking like the team's 2018 first-round defensive lineman, Daron Payne, may be gone via free agency next offseason. Did the team go overboard in spending all of those first-round picks on defensive linemen? And generally speaking, is it better to invest in defensive linemen or in corners? So that's an
5: interesting question because it kind of more goes to stability, excuse me, and year-to-year variance. So, you know, I think the reason why defensive line gets paid more and more consistently at a higher market is because you tend to know what you're going to get. You tend to, if a guy plays well for X number of years, he's probably going to continue to play at that level or close to it. Whereas there's a lot of volatility in the secondary, and so, you know, again, I think it's. In my opinion, you do balance your resources. You know, I I respect the Washington trying to just build the best defensive line of all time, but to go with all those picks, you know, premium picks on Alabama defensive linemen in particular, um, you know, over and over again, it's just you want to have a balanced football team. So I, I would say I would pay a defensive line first, but if I'm them, I, I said this the other day, Deron Payne should have gotten traded last offseason. I mean, I, I get that they thought maybe they were a competitive team last year, so why get rid of him? But You knew you weren't going to pay Montez Sweat and Chase Young and Deron Payne after paying Jonathan Allen. I just think they should have been smarter about how they allocated the resources.
1: I'm with you. And, you know, we have said something like that about Washington for years now. Kirk Cousins, Brandon Sheriff, now Deron Payne, Uh, the lack of proactivity. I mean, I know it drives me nuts as a fan, and this is over multiple front office regimes now. Uh, While I have you, I want to ask you about the trade that the commanders made on the night of the first round of the 2022 NFL draft. The commanders initially had the number 11 overall pick in the draft, traded that pick to the New Orleans Saints for a 2022 first round pick, the number 16 overall pick, a 2022 third round pick, and a 2022 fourth round pick. The various NFL draft trade charts were mixed in terms of whether this was a good trade for the commanders, but the Fitzgerald Spielberger evaluation of the trade was that it was a home run for the commanders. Uh, So you and Jason Fitzgerald of overthecap.com have your own means of evaluation of trades in NFL drafts. I wonder if you could tell us about the commanders trade with the Saints and about this means of evaluating NFL draft trades.
5: Yeah, I, I thought it was a slam dunk for the Washington Commanders and and you know they, they haven't always been prone to trade down. So I thought it was a smart move for this kind of newer regime. Yeah, so our, our trade chart at the highest level, it's simply we just mapped out what the second contract of every draft pick was, right? So, you know, the eleventh overall pick, let's say historically they signed for X amount, the sixteenth overall pick after their rookie deal would sign for Y amount. And and so Using those outcomes, you know, we then built the values for each pick. And you know, in general, you want to stockpile capital and, and have more dart throws. I mean, I even I even ran a specific analysis that applies to their trade, where it was simply just looking at when a team trades up for a certain position, do that does that player outperform the next player taken at their position? So I guess I guess Dodson wasn't the next wide receiver. It would be comparing Olave to Jameson Williams. But nevertheless, no, the answer is no. Like There's not even, teams aren't even taking the right guy at that position when they trade up. The draft is a crapshoot. They don't like to hear that because they spend, you know, 100 hours a week driving all over the country. That's That's the reality of the situation. So I thought it was a great trade for them.
1: So you talk about stockpiling draft capital and accumulating dart throws. This thing that has been out there for years now, that trading down is the way to go in NFL drafts. That is in fact the case, that generally speaking, you are better off trading down in NFL drafts.
5: Generally speaking, particularly early on, because these early picks are so overinflated in their value. And I actually think it's kind of funny because We've now seen teams realize that early picks are overvalued in veteran trades, right? Like I think the Rams have kind of burst this bubble of, is the 25th overall pick or Jalen Ramsey, like kind of those conversations. And I think still, I'm not saying you should just trade all your picks and get 10 seventh rounders and you're going to you know magically build a good team. But early on, day one and early day two, teams are going to pay a
1: surplus. They're going to overpay. Um, and yeah, you're, you're more likely to, to come out ahead. Final question. You study the cap so much. When it comes to the best NFL teams at managing the cap and maneuvering with the cap, which teams come to your mind?
5: Yeah, so this is always funny because you know it's a team that's ranked 31st in the cap health. But I mean, the Philadelphia Eagles are you know very unique. They, they do things. I mean, there's language and ways they pay out players that other teams. I don't even know if they're aware of that you're you know allowed to do that underneath the rules. Um, they're exploring every avenue, every nook and cranny. But that actually ties back to ownership, and, and the reason they need to do that is because their owner wants to spend as much cash as possible, and has you no, know, they have a larger budget. But the the Eagles are great, the Ravens are great, and the New Orleans. Saints you know I'm not a fan of their approach but again they have to find loopholes and and do these unique things just to be cap compliant um, because their ownership wants to spend as much as
1: possible excellent Brad Spielberger pro football focus salary cap analyst he is tremendous Brad thanks so much for your time and all the best to you thank you likewise Well, as we wait for the Orioles to summon their top two prospects, and two of the top prospects in all of baseball catcher, Adley Rutschman and starting pitcher Grayson Rodriguez to the majors, the O's at the major league level, have had plenty of problems again this season, principal among them hitting. Uh, The Orioles starting pitching this season, surprisingly, has been pretty good. Their hitting this season has not been good, but their hitting on Thursday afternoon was good, especially One batter in particular, the O's on Thursday afternoon avoided a four-game sweep to the major league-leading New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards with a 9-6 walk-off win to snap a six-game losing streak as finally, Joe Angel, the O's were back in the win column.
4: And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes,
1: Joe, the win column uh, would have become foreign territory to the O's with that six-game losing streak. The O's this season now 15 and 24. So the O's on Thursday afternoon, nine runs, 11 hits, three walks, four for eight with runners in scoring position. That was big boy offense, and no guy was bigger for the O's than Anthony Santander. Anthony Santander on Thursday afternoon had maybe the single best offensive game that any Orioles player has had so far this season. Santander on Thursday afternoon was the Orioles starting right fielder and number four batter. He went three for four with a walk-off three-run homer, two doubles, and a walk. Yeah, he got on base four times. He finished with three extra base hits. Santander in the bottom of the first had a two-out double. Santander in an Orioles one-run third had a two-out full count double. Santander in an Orioles three-run sixth drew a leadoff six-pitch walk. And then we had Santander's ninth inning. So Santander in the top of the ninth struggled on a DJ Lemayhu two-out game-tying RBI single off Jorge Lopez as the ball bounced right in front of Santander, and he then committed a throwing error. But Santander more than atoned in the bottom of the ninth, during which he smashed a one-out first-pitch walk-off three-run homer down the left-field line and over the new left-field wall at Oriole Park. At Camden Yards. Ball game over. O's beat the mighty Yankees 9-6. A tremendous moment for the O's. And how about this? This is amazing. Santander's walk-off homer on Thursday afternoon was the Orioles' first walk-off homer in a regular season game since August 11th, 2019. <laughs> I mean, th- Thursday was May 19th, 2022. Not since August 11th, 2019, had the O's hit a walk-off homer in a regular season game. Nearly three full years since the Orioles' last walk-off home run in a regular season game. Man, if that doesn't speak to how bad that the O's have been for years now, I don't know what does. Uh, Santander this season now has an on-base percentage of 354. That's quite good. You know, Santander's a tricky guy. At times, he feels like a true building block for the O's. At other times, not so much. This is his age 27 season, so it's not like, you know, he's a supremely older player. Uh, he is, in theory, still in his physical prime here. Uh, but here was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Thursday afternoon on Anthony Santander.
6: We talked a little bit about um, just his, just being on time with the fastball with him. They're elevating fastballs with him, kind of spinning underneath. It's kind of been what they've done in the past when he hasn't gone as well. When, he's, when he can kind of zone down and, and swing at strikes so that he can drive, he's extremely dangerous. Um, good to see him, his last few games right-handed. His right-handed bats have been has been excellent. So that, That's great to see. That means his lower half is feeling good. That was his issue last year, a little bit right-handed, which um, is that it was tough with the ankle. This year, the, his legs feel better. I see You see the bat speed. The bat speed's there, and that's why I felt like it was coming, just because I felt like he was taking better passes at the ball, maybe expanding the strike zone a little bit, but once, if he kind of could lock it in a little bit, the bat speed was there, and and, uh, he's taking some good at-bats.
1: Yes, he is. Uh, You know, Thursday afternoon's game was Anthony Santander's second big game in this series. He had the 6-2 loss to the Yankees on Monday night as the Orioles starting right fielder and number three batter smashed two solo homers. He had a leadoff homer on a 1-2 pitch in the bottom of the fourth and had a one-out solo homer on a 1-2 pitch in the bottom of the ninth inning. So two ninth inning homers for Anthony Santander In this series, Uh, the O's won on Thursday afternoon despite Bruce Zimmerman having his worst start so far this season. Zimmerman allowed five runs in five innings. Uh, He gave up seven hits, a homer, a double, and five singles. He only issued one walk, but he recorded just two strikeouts. Uh, Zimmerman now over eight starts this season at ERA of 348. Also, the O's won on Thursday afternoon despite Jorge Lopez falling to four for six on saves this season. He suffered his second blown save of the season. Uh, Lopez in the top of the eighth struck out Aaron Hicks for the final out, but Lopez in the top of the ninth allowed a run on a walk and a single, and then issued another walk, though he did record two more strikeouts. Brandon Hyde during his post-game press conference on Thursday afternoon on Jorge Lopez, who even with the blown save on Thursday afternoon, has an ERA this season of 142.
6: I, I think Jorge is due for a time when he's not perfect he hasn't had many of them maybe just didn't have his best stuff tonight today the leadoff walk to the ninth inning was has been unusual for him did a great job getting us out of the eighth inning um and listen we gave up a flare to LeMahieu who's such a tough at bat (laughs) these guys have (laughs) these guys are so hard to pitch to they're so deep they take such professional at bats they wear you down they don't swing at balls um They obviously can drive the ball out of the ballpark. They run the base as well. It's a really, really good club. Just really happy with, even though we walked six, I thought we really competed on the mound and got big outs when we needed to. Yeah,
1: so next up for the O's, a three-game series against the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards this weekend. Game one, Friday night at 7.05. Tyler Wells will be the Oriole starting pitcher. Game two, Saturday night at 7.05. Kyle Bradish will be the Oriole starting pitcher. And game three, Sunday afternoon at 1.35. Spencer Watkins will be the Oriole starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Algaldi. You can email me, the podcast at Yahoo.com. Monday show, episode 320, will feature plenty on the Commanders. Next week, by the way, is the first week of Commanders OTA practices this offseason. The Commanders are scheduled to have OTA practices next week, Monday through Thursday, May 23rd through the 26th. So expect lots of press conferences and lots of things to discuss regarding the Commanders next week. Uh, Also on Monday's show, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. The Nats this weekend will play a three-game series at the Milwaukee Brewers. The O's this weekend will play a three-game series against the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday.
5: We're not going to (laughs) be suck this year.